Are we good, Rob? Yep. Okay. Good morning, all. Good morning. I, uh, I'm looking outside this morning thinking it's, it's kind of not the nicest weather, but in 11 days, spring is coming. 10 or 11 days, whatever it is this year. And yesterday, I know I went for a walk with Carol in the afternoon and couldn't help to, to think it's getting close to spring. You hear the birds singing. And there was that first breeze I felt. It wasn't quite warm, but it wasn't cold. It wasn't going through your bones. So it's, there's hope. There is hope. There's even greater hope in God. And that's it's a better hope than spring, let me tell you. I, uh, I want to grab this, the, the bulletin for a minute, the words, because it's in, with, with, uh, speaking about faith this morning and... Uh, I appreciated the, the worship this morning, David, too. Uh, and there was one part, listen. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And he's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. Will you believe that he conquered death? We believe in the resurrection. And he's coming back again. We believe question is, do you believe that? Do you really, in your heart of hearts, believe that? And if you do, how much do you really believe it? How sincerely is your belief? How solid is that belief in God? I, this is a topic that I get concerned of because we we say we believe God, and yet one of the hardest things we can do is have faith. We're, we're creatures that are, we relate to this world with our senses. How do we relate in this world? By sight, by hearing, by taste, by touch. And what faith requires us to do is as it, it tells us in Hebrews 11.1 says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for. Well, hope is always something in the future. It's not now. And being certain of what we do not see. We live in a world that's still, I remember the, here, I'm, you've heard it probably many times, the saying, somebody says, seeing is believing. Or, yeah, somebody says they're going to change or do this and that, and he'll say, I'll believe it when I see it. You know, we really, we're people who desperately want to hold on to the physical, the material, the concrete. And God says, you're going to have to trust me. You know, it's like when you tell your kid where you buy a swimming pool and, you know, drop backwards and don't worry, I'll get you. I won't let you, you know, I won't let you go under the water. Usually they're afraid if they're small. And when they're older and they really know you, they're really afraid because they know what you're going to do. You know? But it's, it's that idea of trusting. It's not easy. In fact, I want to read you something and then we'll pray. Now, you can either just listen if you'd like. I don't know about you. See, I am better at listening when, some, when I hear the word. It helps me. I, I'm, I'm not a good concentrate. I don't concentrate well and I... I have to listen. If I, if I have the words in front of me, sometimes I get distracted and start looking a little further or looking back and this and that. But 
If you want to follow, I'm going to read something from Mark chapter 9, verse 14, from there on. But if you want to just listen, that's okay. Mark 9, 14. Now, just to give you the context of it, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and they went up on a mountain. We don't know what mountain it is, and it really doesn't matter. But while Peter, James, and John were with Jesus, Jesus is transfigured. Basically, what happens is Jesus, that Shekinah glory, his divinity, Jesus, the man God. They know Jesus as the man, but he's also fully God, and he gives them just a glimpse of heaven. Every once in a while, God does that for us in life, I think. He gives us a little glimpse of his glory or heaven, whether it's in a natural setting or whether it's something that takes place in our life, and it just kind of gives us a taste to keep moving ahead. And he gives them this glimpse of his glory, and he's transfigured, it says, where this, this light emanates out from his body. And his clothes turned this most brilliant white. And then their cloud envelopes them, and there's Moses and Elijah there. And naturally, they do the only thing you can do. They fall down on their faces in absolute awe and wonder of what's taking place. That's true worship. That's the most purest worship there is when we are confronted by that revelation of God we cannot help. It's natural. You just will we'll fall down. That's why in heaven we read in Revelation how many times and the elders fell down. It says, and the angels fell down. And the believers and the great cloud multitude, they constantly fell down because God is awesome. He's the only one who is awesome. Baseball players aren't awesome. Dinners aren't awesome. Your girlfriend's not awesome. God is awesome. They may be neat and great and super, but he is awesome and he causes worship. So they're up there and this takes place and he walks back down with them. And when he gets down to the bottom, this is what they see in verse 14. When they came, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, that is, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about with them, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who was possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him 
who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you now to come. Lord, we ask for your spirit to help us hear, to help me speak, and may it be your truth, and may that truth cut us to the heart, Lord. May it change us. Lord, may this not just be a period of information, but a period of information that causes transformation in each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Can you relate to that man? I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Faith is our biggest struggle. It really is. Because as much as we want to believe, everything, just, I shouldn't say everything, much of this world is absolutely working against us, believing, including within us, the sin within us, as we'll see later, that everything, Paul says, that does not come from faith is sin. If you're in sin, you're living a life outside of faith. When your faith is weak, it's coming from some other desire, pulling at it, pulling away. We want our own way. We want to do it our way. It's, it's hard. It's not easy to believe. But it is absolutely vital that we struggle in our faith to keep it and to grow stronger in the Lord. Uh, Hebrews 11, I mentioned it before, but it tells us what faith, it's not really a definition of faith, it tells us what faith does, in a sense. Hebrews 1 says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for. So right away, faith is something that we're, we're focusing on that really isn't about now. It's really something we hope for is what? Always in the future. Hope is never at the moment. You know, people say, you know, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope I win the lottery. I hope my boss gives me a raise. It's always something looking, expecting at some point. And sure, it says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Again, go back to seeing is believing people like to think. We think, you know, if I see it, you know, and who was like that? Thomas, the disciple. He's just like us, isn't he? We really, well, people are always so hard at Thomas. He's such a, you know, an unbeliever. You know, what was his problem? His problem is the same problem we have. You know, our faith is weak. To remember Thomas said, after the Lord was resurrected, he said, I don't believe it. He said, Jesus appears before them. And Jesus says, Thomas, I want you to touch the wounds in my hand and put your hand in my side and then Thomas goes you know my Lord and my God you know but Thomas needed to be reassured and then afterwards Jesus said the ones who are blessed he said are those who have not seen and yet believe who's that that's us we haven't seen Jesus 
We can see evidence of Jesus. You know, faith is kind of in God like believing the wind. You don't really see the wind, you see the effects of it. That's what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. It's like, the, you know, we, it's not something you can grab onto and, and look at and touch, you know, and smell. But faith is something that we have to have to have a, a, a solid relationship with God. That's our, that's our link, our connection to God is faith. Without faith, you know, we don't have God. That's what it boils down to. Think about what John 3.16, think about the most basic verses that most Christians all know. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world, what? That whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, whoever trusts him, whoever puts their faith in him, we're saved by this faith in Christ. I mean, it begins with faith, our journey with God. Think of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, the most foundational, solid verses. For it is by grace you have been saved, what? Through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It is by grace we're saved, but it's through faith. The reformers referred to as the church, referred to it as the instrumental cause. That's a term with Aristotle used to, Aristotle loved the idea of analyzing how do things happen, the philosopher Aristotle. So he, he broke down how do things actually happen. And he said, well, let's see, first of all, he, he, you take like a statue, a marble statue like of David that Michelangelo did. And he looked, he'd look at something like that and say, I mean, Michelangelo, the statue wasn't around when Aristotle was, but I'm using that as an example, what he might analyze. He'd look at a statue of David by Michelangelo and he'd say, how did that happen? What caused it? And he'd break it down and he'd say, well, there had to be some type of pattern here or some kind of design. So we call that the formal cause. Then he said, well, there has to be someone who makes it, who does it. And he called that the efficient cause. And then he said, well, there has to be some kind of stuff to make this material. And he called it the material cause. And then he said, well, you need some kind of tools to chisel this thing. And he said that the hammer and chisel, he would say, were the instrumental cause. They were that instrumental cause, how it, was, how it took place, actually, the actual transformation of it. And here, the church said that faith is the instrumental cause for our salvation. It's grace. We're saved by grace. But faith is that causal agent. It's the agent that actually brings it about from that grace like that. It's absolutely vital. That's our whole relationship with God starts and is based upon faith. And yet, are we concerned about our faith enough? Do you ever think about where your faith is? Do you ever just think, say, do I really believe? When you sit here on Easter morning, 
I wonder how many people as they sit here, I know I have at times, you get a moment in, of, of thought that goes, did it really happen? What if it didn't happen? Can anybody relate to that? Or am I the only unbelieving, filthy sinner in this place? I hear amens. Wait a minute. I don't like this. this is, they're turning on me. They're turning on me. Okay. <laughs> Everybody has that thought. I think I shared that in one of the messages or with the men recently, maybe six months ago. So I'm driving my car, and I'm thinking about God. And then for a minute I said, one day when I take my last breath and the lights go out, are they going to come back on and am I going to see Jesus? And then I thought, yes, you are. And I went right back actually to my conversion, to my regeneration and said, and I could just, I look at my life and I say, I know God changed my life. I know the power of God. I know he's with me. I know the Holy Spirit is there. But we have those moments. But, but when you have that, you, you enter into it. You don't run from it. You don't go, oh, I shouldn't think like that. Oh, oh. No, so what am I thinking here? And, and enter into it a little bit and analyze it and make sure. You always, you always try to go after the tough questions because when you go after the tough questions, you know what happens? You come out stronger because God will give you the answers that will, you need to continue in the faith. You're saved by him. You're saved forever. There's no losing. If you're truly a child of God, the Bible says you can't lose your salvation. It's eternal life. It begins at salvation and it continues throughout eternity. There's no such, well, you know, I, I was saved but I was driving my car and somebody cut me off and I started screaming and there was hate in my heart at that moment and I had a heart attack and died. And I go before the Lord. Do you think he's going to say, I know you lived a life of faithful service to me in faith, but that last breath you were angry with hate in your heart. Sorry, you know, you know, and down you go. I mean, that's, that's nonsense. That's, 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 that's not clear thinking. You read the Bible and you, you really look at that. You know, I don't know. I'd, and actually, for a number of years, I lived that way in, in, in a former church where I was saved. It was you could lose your salvation. And I was always afraid, you know, like, oh, my heart, what happens if I die at this moment? You know, that's not, that's not the peace of God he gives you. Anyway, I'm moving away from what I want to talk about here. All right. Uh, Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 15, verse 5, he's talking to the church now. He's talking to Christians and he says, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. That's some question to ask. Hey, you Christians, examine yourselves and see if you are in the faith. He says, test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. That's a verse we should all check every once in a while. That's a good question. It really is to say, am I in the faith? What's going on with my faith? You know, make sure you have that assurance. And if you are in Christ, he'll give you an assurance that you are in the faith. 
if you really are a child of God. So let's ask the question, what does faith look like in my life? Or what is the evidence of my faith? James Kennedy did a, 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 a testing of his church probably about 50 years ago. And he went around to every family in the church. And he realized that probably, I don't know the exact percentage, but it was probably over half of the people in the church, he came to the conclusion, were not saved. They were attending church. But there really wasn't faith in their life. Their faith was in what they were doing as opposed to what Christ did on the cross. That they weren't, their, their justification was not by faith. They thought it was by their own works, which is no justification at all before God. All right, so let me start with uh, evidence. And I'll only, I'll only do a few here, a couple actually. Probably one of the biggest signs that the Bible tells us is that we are in the faith, that we are a child of God in the faith, is obedience. Faith and obedience go like this together. If you are truly in the faith, obedience is going to be in your life. You are going to want to obey God's word. Now, does that mean you walk a perfect line every day? Of course not. That's why God gives us those graces of repentance. You know, I mean, that's grace in spite of if, you know, if we had to live the perfect life after we came to Christ on our own, we'd be in trouble. But God does give us the graces in spite of our sin. But the point I'm trying to make is, are you living a pattern of disobedience? That's the point. Your, your lifestyle, your pattern of life. Do you seem to live a life constantly outside of the will of God? I would question where my faith is in that point. I'd say, am, am I really in Christ? Now, every believer at times falls into sin. Again, you know, that's why we have, thank God, we have his grace. But you need to ask yourself, Paul, in Romans 1.5, as he's referring to God, he says, through him, that's the Lord, and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles, now listen, to the obedience that comes from faith. Paul says that's why we called people to the, to the obedience that comes from faith. Not only are we calling people to faith, but we're calling them to the obedience. In other words, that they're following Christ. You know, think about it. The word Christian, what does that mean? Little Christs. We're to be little reflections of Christ. We're to constantly being conformed into his image. That's sanctification. That's growing. As we grow in our faith with God, we grow in our sanctification. We become more Christ-like. So Romans tells us, Romans 1.5, that we're called to the obedience that comes from faith. So obedience is that ingredient that shows us. It's the evidence of faith. Again, not perfect obedience, but a general pattern, a life that has a general pattern of obedience like that. If you want to look, I'm just going to read you 
really one verse from 1 Samuel. This is Samuel talking to Saul, actually rebuking Saul, because God gave specific orders to King Saul with the Amalekites. He said, I want you to wipe them out. And I know some people get upset at those kind of things. The Bible says, how could God like with the women and children and all these people? First of all, those tribes and people that God had the Israelites wiped out were the most wicked, evil, rebellious people. I'm not that we're that great, but these people were just so, their wickedness against God. And on top of that, the Lord knew that if they survive, any of them survive, the Israelites were going to somehow get tied up with them and be pulled down. He knew the Israelites, that, and that's what happened time and time again. The peoples that they didn't, they didn't totally give over to the Lord, like he told them to, they started pulling them down with their idols. They were intermarrying, then becoming pagan worshipers, and then mixing, you know, that idea of mixing Judaism with these other pagan religions like that. So on 1 Samuel 15, Samuel was told to wipe out the Amalekites, and he ends up sparing King Agag, and he keeps a bunch of the sheep. They were supposed to even wipe out all the animals. It was a complete taking out. They kept all the good sheep, all the good cattle, you know, and Saul, so Saul, he offers sacrifices, he says, but they got all this good sheep, all this nice meat hanging around there, you know. It's all about the meat, you know. They, they wanted, the guys wanted lots of meat. So they're holding on to the, the, the cattle and the sheep. And he, he spares the king's life. And Samuel comes and he says, Saul, what are you doing? And Saul says, well, I wanted to keep these to sacrifice them for the Lord. You know, he's full of baloney. He wanted them for themselves, like that. And he was making up excuses. He didn't do what he was told. He didn't obey. And you're all probably familiar with this. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? God doesn't want religion and not obedience. That was over and over again in Israel. The prophets would condemn Israel and Judah for, for the reason that they'd be offering their sacrifices and they were living like the devil. They were living like pagans. But, oh, we, you know, we do our religion. That's a danger. You know, I come to church every week. You know, I read my Bible. I pray once in a while. I don't hurt anybody, you know. And you're living a life of disobedience. That doesn't cut it. He says there that the Lord does not delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices. Religion, as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord, to obey is better than sacrifice. He says, obedience, that is a mark of faith in us. Are we really following God's word? Are we sincere about it? Or are we... You know, we, we follow it when it's convenient. And I want to tell you a story. 25, 30 years ago, this is. 
I notice as I'm getting older, the stories are getting further and further back here, you know. I'll be talking, uh, about 120 years ago, I remember, you know, it's, it'll be, uh, <laughs> it seems to be getting further and further away. I realized this year I graduated 50 years ago from school. 50 years ago. I know some of you were in shock, and I was 18 at the time. You're looking, 50 and 18, he's 68 years old. I don't. Man can't be more than 34, 35 years old. I know what you're thinking right now and stuff. My answer to you is I've lived a hard life. This is what happened to me. You know, it's, just, it's rough out there, I'm telling you. It, you age quickly. Anyway, enough of my nonsense. Uh, about 25, 30 years ago, I'm at a Bible study in someone's house. And while I'm there, I knew that the fella, he was an elder in the church. He was what, you would, what we would, in human terms, he was a good guy. He was a, you know, pretty faithful guy, you know, uh, a faithful leader. And so he had lost his job recently. He had been laid off, in fact. It wasn't his fault. He was the company, I guess, laid off people, I believe. That's what had taken place. So afterwards, you know, what do you always have at a Bible study afterwards? Coffee and cake. Cake, that's our, <laughs> that's like the koinonia of the modern church, I think, is cake. We have, <laughs> you know, what do we share in common? Cake. So anyway, uh, we're having coffee and cake, and I went over to him, and I started talking to him. I said, man, how you doing? You know, because, I mean, you know, I know you lost your job and stuff. He said, oh, he said, Walt, actually, I'm doing okay, he said. I started receiving unemployment, and then he went on to say, and he said, somebody I know who does construction, he said, they hired me off the books, and I'm getting paid cash. Now, at that time, I wasn't as, I guess, felt, I don't want to say confident or bold, but I was a little more timid about confronting people about things like that. So I tried to play more like dumb, like Columbo, I guess, and I said, now, if, you're, if you have a job, I said, and you're collecting unemployment, don't you have to tell them? I said, because don't, don't you, I was trying to do it very tactfully and sheepishly, it was what it was. It was, I wasn't bold enough to just confront them, but we ought to do it in gentleness and respect always, always, you know, none of us, that's what Paul tells us in Galatians 6, right? You know, when a brother is in sin, but you do it with gentleness and respect. Why? Because we can fall into sin just as easy. We're, we're very weak. So anyway, so I said, well, I said, I said, now, isn't that a problem for unemployment? Because I said, when you sign unemployment, isn't, aren't you saying that you're not working, and, you know, if you do, you'll report it and stuff? And he said, well, it's no problem. He said, because, again, he said, he said, it's cash. It's off the books. And I looked at him and I said, is that right? You know, I, I said it in the sheepest way. I said, is that right? And he said, hey, bro, he said, I got to feed my family. Now think about that for a minute. I have to sin. I have to cheat. I have to steal, and I have to lie. Otherwise, my family's not going to eat. God isn't faithful. I mean, really, what does that boil down to? It's a lack of faith in God. 
First of all, they weren't going to be without food. They were doing okay. Secondly, the church was a good church. They never would have let that happen. They would have pounded them with food. We had a food pantry in the church. You know, that's... There were many means that would have taken place. The church, if they had a problem with rent, the church would have given them money for rent. They're faithful. They were faithful Christians. But do you see what happens there? With a lack of faith comes a lack of obedience. That's a lack of faith. That's saying, I can't trust God to provide for my family. So I have to sin in multiple ways to provide for them. That's wrong. I dare anybody to show me in the Bible where that's right. Now, he was a Christian leader. But those are the things we have to look at in our life and say, am I trusting God or am I trusting myself? And basically what that said, I read that what he was doing was saying, if I don't sin, God's not going to take care of my family. So I have, God won't do it, so I have to do it. These are the deceitful things that we, we get caught up in and try to justify it. He was justifying his sin at that point. You know? And what does it all boil down to? A lack of faith. Paul says in Romans 14.23, he says, everything that does not come from faith is sin. He's not trusting God, and it's, what do you see? Sin. You know, we either, you think about it, if we really believe God, if we really believe that God is the eternal, self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing, never-changing God of the universe, and he gives us, last week, our brother Lou over here was talking about, in the sermon, the precious promises of God. Obviously, we don't believe those precious promises. If we did, why would we go against God? That would be crazy. If you really look at it and we say, if God is who he says he is and we believe it, how could I not want to do what he says? Because we don't believe it. It is a lack of faith. And I'm not trying to come down and be negative. I'm just sharing you because I see that when I see that in my own life. I say it's a lack of faith is what it is in God. When we sin, it's a lack of faith. It really is. We're trusting ourselves and doing it our way as opposed to being with God because we want it our way. We, anyway, James says something interesting in, in the first chapter, verse 22. I, I love James because he kind of just, <laughs> you know, throws it. He lays it on you. He doesn't fool around. He doesn't sand the edges off or, you know, take the file and get the bars. He just, boom, this is the truth. Take it. <laughs> he says, basically, he says in 122, he says, do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. How clear is that? Why don't we believe that? Why don't we follow that and obey that? 
They're not merely listening to, you know, we, oh, that's a great sermon. Wow. Oh, man, that's really good. Yeah, oh, I read in the Bible the other, oh, this is wonderful. And then what do we do? We do the opposite? That's exactly what James is talking about. You know, and this is, I'm not trying to give you a major head slap by these words. This is, this is for all of us. But this is truth. And these are the, see, I don't want to always just preach. I don't want to preach things that necessarily make us feel good. Not that, it's not that, once in a while it's nice to feel good with God's truth. Not fantasy, but God's truth. But I hope when I preach or I teach, I get you to think more deeply. Don't run from, these are the issues that we need to deal with for real Christianity. If you want authentic, organic Christianity, I'm going to call it, then deal with these things. Face it. That's why God gave us confession and repentance, so that when we do that, we can rejoice then in His grace. That's the cycle. You know, it's not... Re confession and repentance isn't for us to get down at the pit at the bottom and go, I'm a bum, I'm a sinful mess, I'm horrible, I'm miserable. Yes, all those things are true about you. No, about me too. But, but in the end, in the end what it means is that in spite of that, Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That should, that should reassure us right there that I don't have to be afraid. That in spite of that, is God says, confess it, repent it, and mean it. Repentance is meaning it, and it's also what? Repentance causes change. True repentance, right? The 180 degree thing. I'm looking at my sin and I turn toward God and move in a whole new direction. That's, that's grace. And that's what we rejoice in. In spite of who we are and our lack of faith and our in inclination towards sin, God loves us. And then we go, we start again. We say, okay, I want to obey now. And if we fall again, we confess and we repent. You know, what does John say in first chapter 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will we'll, we'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness or purify us from all unrighteousness. Do we believe that? If we believe that, do it. That's all. That's what James would tell us right now. James would look at us and say, you believe that? Good. Do it. He said, don't just read it and go, oh, this is good stuff. Again, it's not, it's not the purpose of the of sermon is not just to, to fill your heads with information. It's to get the information goes in our heart that causes transformation. Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It gets in here, and then it has to get down. When it gets in the heart, boom, we're new people. We first have to change our thinking and believe it, and then it transforms our hearts. Okay, let me move on quickly. Time is moving fast here. Uh, I wanted to talk about works with James, but uh, you know what James says. Faith without works or faith without deeds is dead. It's just another example. You know, of saying, if you really believe, it's going to show. 
You know, it comes out by our actions. Our life reflects what we really believe in our heart, ultimately, is what it says. I'll pass on that and go, and think about this. When you have hope, where does that hope come from? What are you hoping in? If you think about it, where does, what is hope based on? The Word of God. Believing the Word of God. Knowing the Word of God. Hearing it. Believing it. Applying it. And the hope of God's precious promises. To get back to our brother's message here. You know, I'll give you an example. Paul in uh, Romans chapter 5. I believe, yes. Romans chapter 5. Starting in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, there's that instrumental cause again, through faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith, again, into this grace in which we now stand. What's that grace? We're at peace with God. We have all the promises of God now. But then the next verse says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's our hope. To see God. To see him face to face. You know, the Jewish believers back in the Old Testament times, you know what the Jews' highest attainment could ever be, what they wanted? They wanted to see what they call the beatific vision. The Jews' ultimate, ultimate attainment and goal would be to see the face of God, the beautiful vision, the beatific views, vision. <laughs> My mouth, I'm talking too fast here. And so for them it was to see the face of God. And Paul says, that's our hope. We're going to see the... Can you imagine one day being face to face with the glory of God and being able to not just disintegrate from our sin, but to be made like Christ in the presence of God? There's nothing better than that. You know, we are, our, our eternity be, will be filled with wonder. God will provide all the wonders. You won't need your cell phone for entertainment. You won't need the big screen. You won't need the computer. You, know, you won't need... The, all the entertainment we look for, the concerts, the glory of God is going to put us in such awe and wonder that we're just going to want more and more. And we're going to be like Revelation says, we're going to be falling down on our face. You know, he'll reveal something to us and maybe 20,000 years we'll just be hanging on our face in such awe and wonder. And then we'll get up and then he's going to show us something else. And we're going to go, you know, that's the way I picture heaven because as long as God is there, there's nothing better. There's nothing better than that. Look at the wonders that he's created, the universe. Look at the universe. Hello, not just look at the beauty of a little flower or a great mountain or a forest or a bird. I, as I'm, maybe it's a thing of getting older, but I love birds. I don't know. In fact, the neatest thing is right now, in our yard, on our property, we have an eastern screech owl who's staying in one of the houses. 
It's so neat. And he comes out and Carol's always by, by our bedroom window. And she's always, I see her all different times of the day. And I said, what are you doing? I'm looking for hoot, she says. You know, and, and it's amazing. And he puts his head out. And he's beautiful. He's a, he, they're small, the Eastern creature. But he's beautiful. All, all the creation of God, the wonders of God, it's amazing. Okay, let me quickly wrap up because I'm already way over my time. What I wanted, I wanted to stick to 30 or 35 minutes today. I'm sorry. Okay, I, uh, this stuff is too good. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, let me just mention this. Other things to consider in your life. Look at where are you when it comes to obeying God's word? Obedience to the word. What about how I live my life, my works, basically? You know, the fruit of what's going on in my life. Does it show evidence of faith? I also put down prayer. How often do you, not necessarily knee-bending and, and closet type of prayer, but just prayer continually communicating with God. If you believe God is with you, if he's in you, won't you be constantly relating to him? That's why I went back a few weeks ago. I didn't want to embarrass him, but Steve Bissauer, I thought that was uh, such an exciting thing to hear when he said, he said, I don't know, he says, all day long, I, I, I just sense Jesus and I'm thinking about Jesus. And again, I'll say it, I said it a couple of weeks ago, that's normal. That should be normal Christianity. He's with us, you know? Uh, what about finances? I always love, uh, as Christians, our finances reveal so much about us. I always feel like we, too many times we say, I believe God with my soul. I trust God with my soul. But I can't trust him with my money. <laughs> you know, now, that's, you know. Do you trust God with your money? Does your checkbook, someone once said, your Christianity can be revealed by going through your checkbook. That's a pretty good, uh, unless, of course, you're working off the books for cash, then we can't tell, you know, but otherwise, you know. But then you got another problem there, which we'll talk about another time. Okay, let me, let me do this. I'm right near the end, folks. Just hang with me a couple more minutes, please. During the time of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, the major issue, or the material cause, it's called, of the Protestant Reformation was the issue of this. How is a person justified before God? And Martin Luther and the Reformers said, the Bible makes it clear, it's justification by faith alone. We're saved by grace but again, justification is that instrumental cause to get justified. After the God gives us the grace and he gives us the faith, but we have to exercise that faith. Now, as time went on in the Catholic Church and the Counter-Reformation and all these types of things, they said, you know, we have to define what does it mean we're justified through faith. We need a, a, a sharp definition of what it means to be justified. What is that faith? That's what they were asking. What is that faith that justifies? And so, and the brilliant minds, these guys were such brilliant minds. Yeah, and they all got together, and they came up at first with, it was like eight, nine, ten definitions of faith. All the different nuances that the, the word had. 
And he said, this is too many. We have to break this down and simplify it to get it more, you know, to less. And they ended up putting it in three, three different aspects of faith, they said. The faith that justifies. The faith that we need for salvation and with God. And this is what they came up with. They said the first aspect of faith is called notitia. They always use the Latin terms, the, the theologians. It's all Latin. If you start looking at the theologians, it's always Latin. Do you know, for over 30 years, I never knew why they, they wrote everything in Latin. I, and they give you all those Latin words. I finally, I, I finally figured it out. You know why? I bet you're not going to believe it. Why theologians write in Latin? They want to make us feel stupid. That's why they write in Latin. We go, oh, Latin, oh, they must be, oh. Did, did you say he wrote in Latin? It's says, good, you know. But anyway, uh, they said notitia is the first aspect of faith. And what the notitia is, they call it the notitia or the notai. What that is, the content of the faith. That's, that's the, uh, what we believe, the stuff of the faith, kind of. You know what? You know what? You know what the notitia would be? We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And he's given us new life. We believe the song that David led us in today. That's the notitia. That's, that's the information, the content of the faith. But that's not enough to be justified to know it. They said the second aspect of faith is a sensus. It's an intellectual assent. In other words... I know what the faith says, and I believe it. But they said the third aspect is, and that's the good faith. It's called the fiducia. Some say fiducia. And it's from the word fiduciary. We use that like in, in uh, like nonprofit organizations and stuff. People, you know, in, in a fiduciary position, uh, they have help hold positions that are good faith. They are the trusted to manage the money like that. So the word, the third one is fiducia, and it means basically the good faith. And that faith is the faith that acts upon those things. And the best illustration that I ever heard of that, and it's so simple, and I've used it, the men have heard me use this in the, in the men's group, I know, is that of a chair. You look at that chair and you say, it has four legs, it has a seat, it has a back, it has arms. And it holds people. That's the notitia, the first aspect. The next one, the ascensus is, that's a chair and I believe it can hold me. The fiducia, or the fiducia, is I walk over and I sit in it. That's the good faith. That's the faith that justifies, the faith that acts upon that. We can know what the scriptures say. We can believe it. But we have to actually do it. As James says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. That's the doing part of it. That's the part of the faith that's hard. It's easy to say, oh, I, I memorized the Bible. It's, it's easy to say, I believe, yeah, I believe that's all true. But to live the faith, that's the tough part. But that's the part we need to do. We need to obey God. That's the part that counts. It's trusting God. 
is what we need. Uh, how do we get that faith? Uh, we're, we're really out of time, but... Uh, one way is to read the Word of God. Paul tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. Get that Word of God. Ask God to help you with faith, and don't be surprised. One way God, you know, strengthens our faith is to test it. Obey it. Do what it says. It's, it's, it's almost from a practical aspect, but it's the doing of it. You know, and you know what? As you trust God, you're going to find out you can trust Him. When you read His Word and apply I always used to, I used to love to tell people in counseling that I'd give them certain verses and say, start applying this and using it. And they'd come back sometimes and go, wow, that was good. You know, it helped me. It, it, it works. Yeah, it's the Word of God. You know, if we obey it, it's good. It works for us. You know, but we have to apply that faith. So, I'll end with this. And may this be us, that we, that we reflect this. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. You know the next part. The life I live in the body, I live by faith. And the faith he's talking about is that fiducia, sitting in the chair, actually obeying, doing it. He says, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That should drive us on. It's the love of God that drives us. It's the gospel, the love of Christ, that gracious, merciful grace of God that should drive us to faith and obedience. I can believe Him, I can trust Him, and I can do it. May we be people of true faith that acts on the whole Word of God, just not on the things that are easy but the things that are difficult. You know, remember Job, one thing he didn't do with all the problems, and I don't want to start another, another topic here, but he never stopped believing God. And in verse, chapter 19, I remember he says, for I know my Redeemer lives, and you know, he's going to stand in the flesh on the earth, he says, and I know I'm going to see him. I'm, I'm forgetting the verse right now, all of it, but he says, I'm going to see him. He says, and how my heart yearns within me. You know, that faith kept driving him that he's not going to give up on God. When David writes the shepherd psalm, what does he say? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or the darkest valley, he says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. That's faith in God, knowing that he's with us. And how does he end that? Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. His faith, he knows he's going to see God again forever. Trust God. Pray that God would, would give you a, a faith that would not waver. That we, I pray that for myself, that it would be a faith that you look at the martyrs and you see that's a faith 
right to the end. May we have an, a faith that is willing to die for. And we have a faith that is willing to die for. Now I say that and I know I say, Gee, I hope the Lord never has to test us for that. But may he give us the grace if we have to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You are so patient with us. And you are faithful always, Lord, in spite of our faithfulness. Lord, help us that our faith would be so embedded in your word and trusting you, Lord, that we would live a life of obedience. And in turn, that life would glorify you, Lord. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that not only reveals it and opens it up to us, but a word, Lord, your, your spirit that also gives us the strength when we rely on your spirit. So Holy Spirit, come. May you make us a people that are truly faithful to you. We love you, Lord. May we love you more perfectly and each other more perfectly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.